Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. netsuite.com slash strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. The phrase mass hysteria gets tossed around quite a lot to describe many famous or infamous events from our recent and not-so-recent global history. There's the Salem witch trials, of course. We've all got that one down, what with half the high schools in America putting on thrilling interpretations of the crucible to this day for reasons no one can explain. But what about the dancing plague of 1518? Or the Hammersmith ghost hysteria of 1818? Or the satanic panic of the 1980s and 1990s? Or what about all the killer clown sightings just a few years ago? But while experts may quibble over whether mass hysterias, or panics if you prefer, can actually cause people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, If you examine a list of events and phenomena that have been classified as such, you'll soon notice two distinct categories. The social fear and the unexplainable. Now, of course, the unexplainable isn't necessarily supernatural or even necessarily mysterious. It can simply mean that the explanation, however pedestrian it may be, has not yet been identified. We, of course, walk that semantic line with some regularity on this show. If you lose your keys, for instance, it is very unlikely that they have vanished into a void of the great beyond. You probably left them somewhere silly and boring, and you'd hopefully not make a podcast episode about the experience. Or maybe you would and it would be great. Who are we to judge? But there are other times that explanations are less satisfying, and experiences happen on a larger scale, and dismissing them as simple public panics, while certainly convenient, becomes more difficult the deeper you dig into the subject. Sociologists who study this sort of thing are rather fond of the following story. 
and they consider it to be a classic example of a panic. We'll see what you think. Because the alleged hysteria we've fallen upon today is, well, weird. Weird in that it's incredibly mundane and pedestrian to have whipped up such drama in such a short period of time. Well, technically, it's the opposite of pedestrian because today we're talking cars. Or, more specifically, their windshields. Because back in 1954, in Washington state, there was a sudden rash of mysterious damage, seemingly done overnight, that plagued the vehicles of a town called Bellingham. Small, roundish pits appeared in windshields that owners swore had been pristine, and while their cars were parked in lots, at police stations, and in the driveways of quiet homes on residential streets. And no one, or, sorry, no car, was safe. And it didn't take long for theories as to the origins of these pits to spread. But let's start at the beginning. Based on the coverage in a flurry of breathless articles published in the Seattle Daily Times, the Spokane Chronicle, and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, windshield damage was apparently very serious business. Before the mysterious events of the spring of 1954 were over, there would be a dozen or more theories for the glass pitting, ranging from cosmic rays to, well, fleas. We'll get there. In late March of 1954, Bellingham, Washington, a town 90 or so miles north of Seattle, was struck, maybe literally, by this bizarre phenomenon. No one seems to know precisely how this began or who spotted them first, but it definitely started in Bellingham. And soon, cars in Seattle and surrounding cities were also spotting the same telltale marks. Generally, the holes had a particular shape and depth. They weren't holes at all, really. Mostly, they didn't go all the way through the glass, but rather made pockmarks in it, as if a strange and caustic kind of hail had rained down and landed only in certain areas. Per the Spokane Chronicle, quote, Baffled Seattle police and victimized car owners blame vandals but talk half-seriously of men from Mars today after their first encounters with the mystery windshield snipers of Northwest Washington. Seattle had its baptismal last night as the wave of vandalism which started last night in Bellingham continues to spread southward. That's putting it mildly. On hundreds of cars from Bellingham to Seattle and beyond, they appeared. Dings in glass on dozens or even hundreds of vehicles, which owners swore had been blemishless. There'd been no hailstorm hanging out over Washington to conveniently explain the sudden appearance. Just a flurry of reports that, by mid-April, had the press stirred up into an absolute tizzy. By the time the press in Spokane and Seattle were reporting in earnest, police in cities across the state were fully immersed in windshield trials and tribulation. The problem was, everyone could see the damage. It was right there, clear as day on the glass, but no one was sure where it was coming from. Someone, or even an entire downtown block of someone's, would be going around and boom, owners would return to their cars, only to discover a blemish or blight upon the windshield. 
not the back windows, not the side mirrors. Houses, they were fine, but windshields were in for it. Now, you might think that calling the police over such a thing would seem, well, an overreaction, but it was happening in droves. The AP listed other cities where the phenomenon had spread. Hoquiam, Tacoma, Olympia, Aberdeen, Port Angeles. And by mid-April of 1954, everyone in Washington was aware of the problem. It had been all over the news. So, when they saw a fresh ding in their windshields, well, it was time to alert the proper authorities. And what did the authorities say? It depended on who you asked. Per the Spokane Chronicle, they all had their own theories. Some, like Chief Lawrence of Seattle, thought that whatever was going on, humans couldn't be to blame. It seems a physical impossibility for any one group to have done this damage. But in other areas, it was assumed that vandals had to be responsible. According to the Seattle Daily Times, a naval air station on Whidbey Island, as the name suggests, that's an island in the Puget Sound, had an incredible round of pitting. Authorities there were certain that vandals were to blame. Apparently, at around 9 a.m. on a weekday, quote, virtually every automobile on Main Street was hit. Then, cars on residential streets were hit too, and oddly, the cars were almost all parked, with their windshields facing the sidewalk. So, if vandals had done the damage, on a busy downtown thoroughfare, they would have had to walk down those same sidewalks and, one would assume, fire at windshields with some sort of weapon. But there were no sightings of such a procession. Per the Spokane Chronicle, police there had reports of at least 500 damaged cars. They thought that most of it could be explained by regular road damage, but allowed that teenagers with air rifles could have gotten in on the fun. But that situation they posited would have been few and far between. But the residents weren't so sure. Many reported that the pits had appeared in minutes or hours. They'd gone inside a store, or even in one case, a police station, and come back to find new damage on their vehicles. One man said, The car was okay at 3 p.m. because I looked at it. By 8, it had been hit he was able to show five pit marks to reporters. There was another resident of Spokane who claimed to have seen pit marks appear in front of his eyes. Per the Chronicle, this man, Sam Gordon, was out driving with two passengers, all of whom were riding in the front seat for giant old car reasons, we guess. It was broad daylight, the afternoon. Suddenly, quote, he heard a noise like small explosions. And there it was, two pit marks in the windshield. And we know what you're thinking. Okay, well, gravel. But Sam said there was no car in front of him on the road to have kicked it up. And in other towns, the same issue. Police Chief George Nelson of Everett said 200 to 300 windshields were damaged on car lots, where most of them were also, quote, Angle parked at curbs. He told the Spokane Chronicle that he had no theories, but I'd sure like to get my hands on someone. There had to be some thing causing this, right? People were finding bits of evidence here and there, but it didn't seem to match up. Some found bits of papery ash, 
At Whidbey Naval Air Station, authorities reported finding various forms of rock-like particles embedded in the glass. But that wasn't a universal finding. Per the Spokane Chronicle, Seattle Police Captain Raymond reported, quote, sand of the consistency usually seen in sandblasting. Others reported BB pellets, white rock, and slivers of steel. According to the Seattle Daily Times, there were also reports of a dark substance that caused bubbles to form, quote, within the glass, expand to the burst point, and leave the glass to develop where no human agency could possibly be involved. And, according to the Seattle Daily Times, quote, two persons reported finding particles which reacted to the lead in a pencil. A man with the absolutely amazing name of Orville Jones told reporters that he found, quote, carbon-like particles embedded in one windshield. He followed up with his scientific discovery. I touched the hole with a toothpick and nothing happened. But when I touched it with a lead pencil, the particles around the pockmarks jumped away. We don't know exactly what to make of that, but we're really proud of him. Go, Orville. Another woman claimed to have seen tiny bits of metal floating in the air. She didn't try to poke it with anything, unfortunately. Within days, people were writing to Seattle officials with all sorts of suggestions as to what might be happening. They were also calling and sending telegrams. Per the Daily Times, there were dozens of theories offered, from cosmic rays beaming down from space to sonic oscillators secretly installed on automobiles. But perhaps the most truly inspired theory of them all? The sand flea. Perhaps sand fleas had laid their eggs in the glass, as sand fleas are not want to do, as far as we know. But anyway, they'd done it, and now the eggs were finally bursting out. The proponents of this theory were a little vague on the details, but we appreciate their vision. By this point, the city officials throughout Washington were very stressed. An Associated Press article reported that the mayor of Seattle, Alan Pomeroy, requested the immediate aid of President Dwight D. Eisenhower to, quote, instruct appropriate federal agencies to cooperate with local authorities on an emergency basis. The mayor had apparently settled on a theory. The mysterious substance destroying cars was ash. Personally, we would have gone with sand fleas, but whatever. Per the Seattle Daily Times, local law enforcement agreed with him. Nearly three dozen gathered in Everett to discuss the issue. And they decided that ash was the culprit, although, quote, they were not prepared to state the source of the ash or its properties. By the way, the most important line in this article, which was absolutely buried, was that none of the 30 law enforcement officials, all of whom had shown up for this discussion, knew who had actually called the meeting. But back to the mayor. If you recall, he'd asked for President Eisenhower's assistance. And it turns out that this ash theory had pushed him to do it. According to the Associated Press, the mayor claimed that the material had been tested by local laboratories and seemed to be a, quote, type of ash which could come from a pulp mill or could be atomic material. At that point, there had been major rumors brewing that the pitting was the fault of, quote, radioactive material drifting in from an H-bomb blast. But, according to the Spokane Chronicle, 
Navy experts had used a Geiger counter to check the substance and the windshields for radioactivity, and they'd found none. So, what were those local labs doing? There weren't any clear culprits like pulp mills. And how would that explain all the other strange material people kept producing? Looking for creepy stories? Then we might have a podcast for you. And now, presenting Rattled and Shook. Rattled and Shook is a weekly podcast that features new scary stories every episode. Kind of like this. I would hear her say things to me inside my head. I couldn't get around him. I was trapped. The other guy started to get pretty agitated. He grabbed my grandfather's oxygen hose and he cut off his oxygen. Then I started thinking, well, you know, who would be hanging around in this nowhere forest, in this nowhere area? And that's when I started looking more closely. And that's when I noticed there were several shapes. And they were slowly working their way toward me as they were moving from tree to tree. New episodes of Rattled and Shook are out every Thursday. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sure you've heard the old adage that you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do, are you making time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal a reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. One listener says the show truly makes my day more enjoyable and entertaining. Fans of the show are so passionate, they even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who've listened to all 900-plus and counting episodes. I highly recommend you check out Everything Everywhere Daily's recent episodes on Why Are There No Flying Cars? and The Little Ice Age That Happened 700 Years Ago. Learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. At this point, panic was rising. But lest you think that everyone was demanding presidential action and that only today's sociologists have their doubts about this story, there were always rational folks quietly suggesting that, perhaps, people's windows had always had this damage, and that they just noticed it because everyone had started talking about windshield assaults. Well, to be fair, some weren't so quiet about their doubts. A local scientist at the University of Washington, a Dr. D.M. Ritter, he told the Spokane Chronicle, Ugh, Tommy Rot." There isn't anything I know that could be causing unusual breaks to windshields. These people must be dreaming. Despite their misgivings, local intellectuals were tasked with public service. For instance, Gonzaga University Chemistry Department Chair Reverend Arthur McNeil was somehow roped into conducting examinations of a number of used car lots. Using his various degrees in what we can only assume was a very unexpected way, 
The Carlots had filed hundreds of the initial damage reports, as they'd been in possession of thousands of cars in the state. And they were increasingly concerned about their stock, which, it seemed, was under continuous and mysterious assault. Per the Chronicle, Reverend McNeil decided to conduct an experiment we're honestly shocked that no one had done yet. He found cars that bore mysterious pit marks. They were mostly facing the road and traffic, which backed the theories of those who insisted that road debris was to blame. He then circled those holes with something. We hope for the sake of the car dealers it was washable. Then he went back to the chemistry department to get some real work done. And when he returned the next day, he found that no new marks had appeared. He seemed to feel this supported the idea that people were simply noticing old holes versus finding new ones. But, as he told the Chronicle, he wasn't sure what had actually caused the damage in the first place. There's no definite pattern, he announced, but also added that he doubted BB guns or similar weapons were being used because they'd likely go straight through the glass. As he was a chemistry professor and not a ballistics expert, we aren't sure how much he knew about the situation, but we'll go with it. The Spokane police chief, Phelps, have you noticed how many police chiefs were juggling in this episode? Told the Associated Press, After we started getting reports, I looked at the windshield of the city car I'd been driving. I found pits I'd never noticed before. He did allow, though, that vandals might be capitalizing on the panic or might have even set it off. I've told the officers investigating damage reports to examine all the cars thoroughly. We will make every effort to determine the cause. We'll also be alert for possible vandalism. This came on the heels of reports that vandals in a hot rod had been seen speeding through the city. One concerned citizen attempted to chase them down in his own car, but alas, he didn't have the horsepower to keep up. So, ultimately, what happened in the case of the Washington pitting epidemic? Well, nothing, really. For some reason, President Eisenhower didn't drop everything he was doing to attend to the windshield crisis of 1954. And, eventually, reports of damage slowed down, petering off in the late spring. Articles on the subject shifted toward the back of the paper, and the whole affair was eventually forgotten. Why had it been such a huge story in the first place? We found 50 or more articles in the archives covering this topic, pretty extensive for a minor mystery. We think that at least some of the public urgency was driven by the incredible number of car dealerships that were hit. They would have added to the sheer total of cars, equaling the eventual thousands across Washington that were reported. Actually, in our minds, that is the strongest evidence that it might have been less mysterious than some thought. Car dealers would have had a much higher chance of discovering random dings and pits just because there were so many cars. Think about all that glass real estate. And this would have been a convenient way to explain dents, too, especially if there was some recompense to be had. Say, some federal aid for windshields. Say, hundreds of used windshields. Of course, that never appeared, but it might have. And it makes sense that one Washington town hears about this strange event, and then another picks it up, and then another. That's no huge mystery, right? Well, 
except for one strange thing. The mysterious pitting? It wasn't just happening in Washington. That April, at least nine states and areas of Canada reported the same bizarre phenomena. Other states reported the same problems. Ohio, Illinois, North Carolina, Wisconsin, the list goes on. In fact, according to the Seattle Daily Times, a meteorologist in Wisconsin was concerned about a strong wind that had, quote, blown in from Washington state at an altitude of 10,000 to 30,000 feet. He told the paper, if it's something in the atmosphere out there, it's blown over here by now. Apparently, there were issues at the local weather station. He noted that cars there had been coated in an oily dust and that the dust, when gathered on glass, created small fractures. Illinois reported the same issues. And what might be causing the dust? Experts from both states weighed in. One scientist thought it might be bugs again. Not the sand fleas this time, but aphids. Just kind of generally. In Oregon, there were showers of, quote, tiny dark feather-like pellets to contend with, and even in Canada, in Vancouver, Victoria, New Westminster, and other areas, there were reports of pitting. And maybe you'll say, well, sure. All these states may have reported mysterious windshield issues, but they'll no doubt have heard about what happened in Seattle. They caught the panic bug, just like the sociologist said. And maybe that's true. But this whole windshield phenomena, it didn't start... In Washington. Not precisely. You see, the British had been dealing with the same problem, unbeknownst to any panicked Americans, for some time before the spring of 1954. And their problem was even worse, because their windshields pitted, then cracked, then totally shattered. According to the Spokesman Review, a stretch of land in Surrey, England, had been plagued by mysterious windshield damage since at least 1951, so much so that it was nicknamed Missile Mile. According to a 1954 article on the subject, quote, nearly 100 windshields had disintegrated mysteriously along a mile-long stretch of highway, and no one had any clue as to why. A key difference was that drivers experienced this while in motion, something that only happened occasionally in the pitting panic over in America, but nearly every theory possible was tested in Surrey, and even Scotland Yard, yes, they got involved, came up blank. Perhaps it was small stones being tossed up from the highway. Well, the road was raked clear each day, and still the windshields were destroyed along the mile. Maybe it was vandals. In this case, they suspected children with BB guns. Well, they set out guards, no children in sight, and still shattering windshields. They even checked for a rogue sharpshooter in the woods, totally terrifying, and brought dogs in to do a search. As you can imagine, they found no marksmen. However, Scotland Yard did stop short of one local's final suggestion, that they perform an exorcism. The reason this was reported on in 1954 was the plane flying over Missile Mile experiencing the very same disintegration of the windshields that happened to automobiles on the ground. 
Although mechanics performed a thorough battery of tests, they could not find a thing wrong with the plane. Strangers, our point here is that mysterious windshield damage was far more widespread in the 1950s than has been previously suggested. It was certainly not limited to Bellingham or Seattle, and maybe that was a panic or a mass hysteria that suddenly caused everyone in Washington to notice dents in their windshields. But how do we deal with the caustic, oily residue in Wisconsin and Illinois? And what about the shattering glass in Surrey? Or the reports as far-flung as North Carolina or Ohio? Now, we're not saying sociologists are wrong, because we are, to be honest, very frightened of them. We're just proposing that rather than being classified as an object lesson in much ado about nothing, the mysterious windshield pitting of 1954 might deserve a place in the ranks of the truly weird. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There you'll get ad-free releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for five bucks a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.